All right, well, we can start, um, and then Don and Karen will join us in a bit. That's fine. So uh, let's uh, begin first with prayer, and then we'll go from there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings, but especially the blessing um, of the witness of those who have come before us, the faithful in the scriptures, who show us that in all things and through all times and places, you have preserved your holy people uh, and cared for them. We ask that you would uh, give us faith to trust that you are working all things out for our good and for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So we're going to do as little or as much as we want today, which is how it always works, right? Uh, until the bell starts ringing, and then I'm like, well, I guess I have to go now. But what did... I don't remember it being like that last time, where it was cutting off the edges. Did it? Oh, all right. Well, whatever. Good enough. So remember what we talked about last time. We, um, we went through all of these examples, I'm scrolling back up, of patriarchs and prophets and Moses, um, who all, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, before that, the week before we did Noah and Abel, all right, and it all was grounded in this statement right here in verse, verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, by the way, if you don't know what book we're in. It's at the top of the sheet, I suppose. Uh, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, we actually had that in the, uh, something similar in the epistle today, did we not? From First John 4, right? How are, something about believing, if you, if you don't care for the neighbor who you've seen, how can you believe in the one whom you have not seen? Wasn't that what it was? First John 4 or something? Yeah. So this is the interesting thing about faith. I mean, faith, faith is not, faith is grounded in reality, but it's not necessarily grounded in experience. Did we talk about that? I feel like we did. Nod your heads, yes or no? All right. Unfortunately, what most people um, take for the Christian faith is actually their experience. So you'll see that this trend really happened late 70s, early 80s, in basically my lifetime, is that you saw churches shift from doctrine to practice. So their emphasis was on what they did more than what, what they believed. Some, some of our even local congregations that we call evangelical, they don't even have like confessional statements. They might, if they do, they're very broad and not very specific. So they believe a little bit about a lot of things, um, but they won't like quote the Nicene Creed, for example. Uh, and then their practice, they, Ethan and I were talking about this on the way today, uh, the practice then ended up being like, let's do whatever we want or whatever we need to do to get people in the door and to appeal to them, right? Which is, which is backwards, according to the Bible. Because the scripture, uh, excuse me, the faith is not appealing. And actually the experience of faithful Christians is not appealing either. And we'll see that in our example today. The experience of faithful Christians isn't appealing. So you can't really make a case like, be a Christian and your life will be better. It might be. It probably won't be. It'll actually probably be more difficult because now you'll recognize the reality of your sin and the sin in the world. You recognize how far from faith the world is, right? Um, and you might actually, you know, have to suffer as a consequence of what you believe. Yeah, yeah. You're and you're supposed to give thanks for it all at the same time. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah. So um, trying to convince somebody to be a Christian because it's going to be a great experience uh, well, one, it's not true, first and foremost. Sometimes it is, but generally not. Um, and then the other, the other aspect of it is that's completely untenable. Like, I can't give you a great experience in church every Sunday. I can't. All I can do is preach God's word to you. Some weeks, it's going to be a better experience than others. And it depends on how actually the Holy Spirit works that word in your heart. You know, the only thing you may have heard, the only, the only thing you may have heard today is how you're such an unlovely person. It's possible. There are people that were like, man, I really hate my neighbor. <laughs> and that's the only thing they heard. Everything else, that wouldn't have been a very good experience. And that wasn't the goal, of course. The goal was faith in Christ, right? Others would say, I do the best I can. I pray God forgive me. And, um, I, and I ask that he work more love in my heart this week. Fine. You know, and that would have been the goal. So I, I can't control that. I, I do the best I can with the rhetoric and the way it's delivered. But in the end, it's the Holy Spirit that actually... Um, is the one who guides your experience. So experience is a, 
Well, it's just like your eyes and your ears and your senses. They can be deceiving or they can be deceived. Let's not go down the propaganda trail, but, you know, that's what the propaganda is, right? It uses your eyes to deceive you. I, uh, I'll give you one example. I posted on the, on the Facebook, that horrible platform that everybody should quit, and somehow I still managed to be there. As many times as I say I'm going to quit, I don't. But I posted, you know, hate speech laws were um, an innovation of Soviet Russia. 1918, 1930, they passed hate, hate crime laws. So you couldn't speak against Jews, but you also, nobody could speak against Russia. See how it works? So, yeah, we're going to prohibit you from speaking against one another's ethnic background, but everybody gets persecuted if they speak against Soviet Russia. That's what a hate, that's what a hate crime does, right? So you can, you're not allowed to speak against gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever it is that the hate crime law is for, but actually what they really mean is you can't speak against the law and against the people who pass the law. It's, they're just using those people as a tool in order to become more authoritarian. Does that make any sense to you? No. Okay, it does. All right, good. So, um, so we went through all these examples over the last couple of weeks, uh, some of which we did on that Wednesday night and others we did um, here on Sunday. But what happens uh, where we're going to jump in today um, is he does this rhetorical move. He does this a couple times today, actually, where he just like almost changes the subject. So it's right there. And what more shall I say? Which is, uh, I gave you the technical term for it. It's called uh, a paralipsis, lipsis, or a praetere, per, excuse me, praetericio. My Latin's kind of weak. Praetericio, which is a summary statement saying, Okay, now I'm just going to summarize the rest of the examples. You see that? Yeah, you can see it there at the top. I'm just going to summarize the We can't go through everybody. You know, we don't have all day here. That's basically what he's saying in the sermon, right? You know, I could tell, we could talk about Gideon. Oh, we haven't read this yet. Maybe we should read it before I talk about it. Uh, yeah, why don't we read it? Just read our, re we, can, we can read the whole thing. And then we'll talk about it. Sorry. Um, you can see how he kind of summarizes, right? The preacher-teacher here, what does he do? He's like, I'm just going to talk about stuff that happened and things that they did, right? We're not going to go through all the specifics. But we're in Bible class, so why not, right? We can try to figure out who, who he's being referred to in all of these examples, right? Um, so what does he do? First, we've got six people. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. All right, these are all judges, right? David, and then we have Samuel. Samuel is a prophet, and the rest of the prophets. All right, so we have, we have a king in there, but then we have, well, David was kind of a multiple, he filled multiple roles. Yeah, he was a little bit of a judge too, right? Judgment against Sam, um, Saul. Notice who's mentioned there. Yeah, there's no Saul. Where did Saul go? Wouldn't you mention Saul before you'd mention David? Being the first king? Because this is time, this is working through time. Why did we skip Saul? He was appointed by God. But. No, it didn't have to. No. He wasn't faithful. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't matter. God picked him. No, I mean, Samuel anointed him. God chose him. Right? But he knew what was going to happen. 
Yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. You know, Saul ends up rejecting the faith and dies an apostate, so not so good, all right? So the prophets at the end is kind of a summary, but there's seven then total, but the prophets are kind of inclusive. All right, so then 10 things that they gained from God. We have through faith conquered kingdoms. Well, who might that refer to? Who conquered kingdoms? Well, yeah, David, Solomon, right? They expand, they conquered all, they finally conquered the land of Canaan mostly, right? Uh, and through faith, right? I mean, you, because you had that with uh, Joshua. Joshua goes into the promised land, but before that they couldn't because they didn't have faith that God would actually overcome um, the enemies. So conquered kingdoms, but through faith, right? Because who actually conquered the kingdoms? Who went before them into battle? The angel of the Lord, that's right, yeah. All right, enforced justice. That's an interesting translation. Mine says worked righteousness. Worked righteousness. I think this is referring to what? Worked righteousness. Yeah, it does what God approves, right? And so I would say this is, you know, it's finally under the kingdom of David, kind of, but definitely under the kingdom of Samuel, or not Samuel, Solomon, right? Solomon is known as the wise king who, who ruled justly, right? He was wise and he ruled justly, but his personal life was a mess. <laughs> Go figure. I, you know, this, it reminds me of the whole politician conversation. You know, people get all upset about politician and their personal life. And they're like, really, the, their personal life's going to be a mess. I, so if you talk to psychologists, it's a particular, there's a particular, uh, what do you want to say, archetype of person who wants to be a politician. And they're really not well. Because <laughs> you, you like to be in the spotlight. You also are kind of a narcissist. You're into like people paying attention to you. It's kind of like a celebrity, except you're also responsible for like people's well-being, unlike a celebrity. <laughs> so I don't know why you would want to be such a thing. But there you go. I gave you some examples here about working righteousness or enacting justice, as ESV says. Here's Psalm 72. Might sound familiar. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This is of Solomon. See? Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Uh, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Wouldn't that be nice? All right, so there's, that's of Solomon talking about actually enacting righteousness. You know, you have that famous story with Solomon with the, the two women, right, arguing over the child. So you get an idea of that. Uh, but look at here, speaking of David and righteousness. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, there it is, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Uphold it. All right. Uh, government of righteousness. Yeah, why is it? To order it and establish it. Oh, I didn't go far enough. I'm like, where's the word I wanted? Sorry. Scroll. There it is. <laughs> with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There you go. So the king bringing righteousness. Make sense? Uh, it comes up again in Isaiah 11. So we might as well look at that. There shall come forth. You've heard this one before too. Seems like we're at Christmas all of a sudden. It's Christmas in June. Feels like July or August. There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And here we go, bringing righteousness. Ready? He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Remember, we talked about the eyes and the ears, the senses. You weren't here yet. Being deceiving, right? Propaganda. Yeah. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. All right, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be, or shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All right, so this is, of course, of the eternal king, speaking of Christ Jesus. Again, we hear that at Christmas time each year. All right, going backwards, going backwards, there we go. Good. 
Good so far? So enforce justice or worked righteousness. Um, obtained promises. What promises? Think of those people, David, Samuel, the prophets. What, did, what promises did they obtain? Of Jesus? Mm, of Jesus? No, actually, the conclusion of the reading is not of Jesus, that we have a greater inheritance than they had. So what did they receive? They, they did receive promises, but what promises? How about today's Old Testament reading? How about today's Old Testament reading? All right. It's the promise of a multitude of offspring. Multitude of offspring, right? They became a great nation. Good. What else? Right, I know, but that comes later. That's not what he's talking about here yet. You'll see, you'll see what I mean in a minute. Or by the end of class, hopefully. Yeah, no, this is talking about, this is talking about temporal, earthly, earthly things. What promises? How about Canaan, the promised land? Did they get it? Under David? Yep. Yeah. Okay, what else? Did I give you other examples? Oh, nationhood, growth, material prosperity. Oh, God promised them that they'd be wealthy. Yeah. So not only to bring everything out of Egypt, but then uh, the land was flowing with milk and honey. Milk tonic? Yeah. What does milk and honey make? Absinthe? Oh, something they called milk? Hmm. Don't know. Yeah, and if you want the promises, I gave you them from Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 35. So you can go look at those, right? But God promised a nation. We heard that in church on this morning, right? Old Testament. Um, growth, right? And then, of course, Canaan and all of its wealth. So there you go. Obtained promises. Stop the mouths of lions. That sounds familiar. Now we're into Sunday school stories. Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, lion's den. That's good. Who else? Samson did it too. That's right. And remember before the whole Goliath incident, what does David talk about? Oh. David killed a lion too. Yeah. So we, so we have a little bit, a little bit of David, a little bit of Samson back there. And then also, but of course, Daniel, um, which was intertestamental, you know, that was towards the end of the Old Testament scriptures. But I think Daniel's probably in mind there in, in particular. That's Daniel 6, by the way, if you want to go read it. There's probably a song. Do you know a song about Daniel in the lion's den? Some children's song, campfire song? I don't know. I don't know one. It seems like we should have a song for that. Something to sing. Uh, yeah, there's them bones, them bones, them dry bones. That's Ezekiel. Yeah, I'm thinking of a spirit. There's got to be a spiritual for Daniel in the lion's den. Find it. Use, your, use the Google search. Don't use the Google search, sorry. Google is messing with your mind. Do not use Google. Use a, use a different search engine, please. Actually, I don't even know if you, how are you not supposed to? They took a search engine, they addicted you to using it as your primary source of information, and then they filter the information so that they can manipulate how you think. That's what Google is. Yeah, well, it's not, just, it's not, not Big Brother so much as it's like, so especially political things, but you can do this with scientific things. Like search for lab leak the, um, hypothesis, right? Lab leak hypothesis. Well, this would have been easier to do a week ago. Search for it on Google. You're not going to get any responses or only debunked, et cetera, et cetera. Search for it on like DuckDuckGo, which is kind of more neutral anyway. And it's like, oh, look, there's actually, you know, prominent scientists who are proposing this theory. Why is Google telling you it's, not a, it's a debunked theory? It's not a debunked theory. It wasn't actually, it had been rejected by the press and rejected by politicians, but it hadn't been rejected by scientists. The scientists were just silenced. Yeah, don't use Google. Use something else. I don't even, Bing even was censoring, uh, what was it this week? Oh, the Tiananmen Square picture. The guy in front of the tanks, Bing was censoring it. They said it was a mistake. It was just human error. Sure. I don't believe that for a minute. Or at least I'm skeptical. We'll say I'm skeptical. Fair enough. It's pretty good coffee today. If I do say so. This is a uh, what did I put in here? Colombian. It's a Colombian coffee, but it's, it's very sweet. It's soft on the palate. Nice. All right. Um, quenched the power of fire. Who's that? You got grounds in the bottom? Yeah, I, don't, I didn't look at the... Sometimes the filter doesn't stay. I have to, maybe I need to use two filters. 
You just boil it in the pot, yeah, where it's kind of thick and, yeah. All right, uh, quench the power of fire. Who's that? Yeah, Daniel's three friends, right? I think that's right. I don't know what else that could be. That seems to be the most obvious. So we have two story of Daniel, maybe. Escape the edge of the sword. That's David. Remember with the story with Goliath? It describes his sword. Some kind of, I mean, it's a broad sword. But then David uses it to cut Goliath's head off. Maybe it didn't have, I mean, Goliath was knocked out, so it didn't probably have to be like a clean cut. He could saw. No, it doesn't. He was killed. No, why do you cut his head off? He's not dead yet. No, it just knocked him out. Just knocked him out. It doesn't actually say the stone killed him. It just knocked him out. He fell. Which could mean he died, or it could mean he was just knocked out, and then David cut his head off. But they leave that out in Sunday school. I don't understand. It's my favorite part of the story. It's just like, just like the story of the priest getting drunk and vomiting all over the tables. And it's like, it was never in Sunday school. Like, why? That's a, that's a, that's a terrific story. You know, I live in Wisconsin. This happens all the time. Uh, actually, you hold your liquor probably better than the priest did. Okay, so... Yeah, David. But you also have, um, it's mentioned that both Elijah or Elijah escaped the sword, right, of Ahab and Jezebel. So that, uh, that w- he would fall into the prophets. So that's good. That would work too. You can probably think, this could be metaphorical to anybody. By the way, you got here late. So he, at the beginning of this, you see what he did? And what more shall we say? He's like, all right, we could talk about people specifically like we've been doing the whole chapter. And eh, we're just going to summarize now. And they summarize by actions and things that had happened to them and gifts that God gave them. All right, so um, we're made strong out of weakness. Who might that be? Uh, Yeah, I think that's Samson. Remember, Samson lost all his strength. But then when it came time to uh, destroy the temple of Dagon, a Philistine god, who they also sacrificed children to, by the way. Um, So that's that's what God thinks about child sacrifice. Uh, He will tear down those temples one way or another. Oh, what do we got next? Became mighty in war. That one might be a little tricky. I also thought Gideon might be in here, became strong out of weakness. That this could be kind of a metaphorical statement in a way. Um, Because Gideon, when Gideon's talked about, he comes from the least of the tribes, Manasseh. Remember, that's one of the two sons of Joseph. So, little tribe. And then he's described as one of the least of Manasseh. He's not even that impressive. But really, David actually is there too, right? He's the runt, the litter. So strength out of weakness. Um, so you could do that. Became mighty in war. We have lots of warfare in the Bible that could be in mind here. What are they suggesting? Judges 7. What's Judges 7? That must be Gideon as well. There's David. David again. Yeah, Joab. I mean, you get a lot of examples of mighty in war. Uh, those who are mighty in war, though, what's the key for them? Defeating their enemies. Just like love, also, yeah, it's faith that defeats the enemies. It's actually Christ who does it for them. Uh, and the key is that they just receive it. That was the problem with Saul, right? Is that Saul thought, hey, I'll go do battle with the Philistines. Never mind what Samuel said. You know, doesn't go well for you. And then, then they end up with the Ark of the Covenant. And then... I don't know. They eventually get it back, and then they lose it again, and then Indiana Jones has to find it. Yeah, he tried. Sac- he, that's true. He did his unauthorized sacrifice as well. Saul was terrible about that. Stay paint in the in the lines, right? So we teach kids, right, when they're little, you know, the number paint within the lines. You, you just scribble, okay? Uh, let's see what else do we have. Oh. 35, this is cool. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Yeah, Zarephath, that's right, with Elijah. And then Elisha had the same, same situation. The Shunammite woman, yeah. Which I know we hear, uh, do we hear both of those stories? I think we do in the lectionary. I know we hear Zarephath in Lent, yeah. So there's Second Kings. This is with Elisha, right? The child had grown. He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said, oh, my head, oh, my head. I don't know, with seizure, something, right? 
And the father said to the servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. What a sad story. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. So same story where the man of God is upstairs, right? Uh, then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants on one of the donkeys and one of the donkeys that I may go quickly to the man of God. I love that expression. We sometimes say, what, the man of the cloth, right? But there's the man of God and come back again. What's the movie with Clint Eastwood where he's the priest? Or he's the pastor? What's that movie? Yeah, no, yeah, Pale Rider, right, yeah. Find the man of God, right? Um, and he said, will you, why will you go to him today? It is neither new, <laughs> new moon nor Sabbath. Okay, guy. <laughs> she said, all is well. And then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sat out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Right, so her husband's kind of got a, he's like, why would you go to the man of God? It's not a Sabbath day. Remember, and their liturgical calendar follows the moon, not the sun. Right, think like um, Holy Week, you know, follows the lunar cycle, for example. Right. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. Ooh, that's cool. How beautiful are the feet. And the Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she, we don't have this in the lectionary, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told, has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. Right? Remember, sleep and wake is a picture of death and life. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth. Ah, CPR. His eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. Can you visualize that one? Yeah. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked back once, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times. Okay. And the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. The Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Uh, and then Elisha goes, has to deal with the famine again. As is, seems to be the case often. Yeah. Yeah, the head. Respiratory problem because of the sneezing? Huh. He did sneeze. And that a thing when you're having a heart attack, you're supposed to cough, right? Do you know this? You don't know this. Sunstroke was a problem with children. Okay. I don't know. Uh, his head hurt. He died. And then Elijah brought, him, Elijah brought him back to life by the word of the Lord. Good enough for me. And CPR. That's right. Well, he breathed into him the breath of life, right? So a picture of that. Very good. All right. Where were we? Uh, so we got the women, right? Some were tortured. Uh, who were tortured? Yeah, Samson was tortured. That's good. Now, here's, here's I, I did a lot of work on this one. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. It happened a lot in the early century of the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, but this was written probably before that. 
that's the one I gave you. That's why your handout is so long. <laughs> because if you go to the back, it's a little, sorry, it's so small. I didn't want to use too much paper. But here, 1 Maccabees chapter 1. So what happens, I don't, I'll summarize it because you don't want to read the whole thing right now. Um, but the guy's name is, we heard, it, we heard another version of his name today in church, Eleazar, right? Yeah, Eleazar, I think that's right, Eleazar. Um, he refuses to sacrifice to Dionysus, to the god, because uh, the Jews were being held and they were, they were doing those sacrifices in the temple. That's, you know, they had desecrated the temple and later the Maccabean revolt, which, and then with the dreidels and the, and the candles that never went out. You don't know what I'm talking about. Dreidel, 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 maybe with clay. Okay. Dionysius? Yeah, he's, he's uh, Greek, isn't he? So why, I don't know why Dionysius is not a Roman god, but it's a Greek god. Well, you know, the Greeks and the Rome, the, the Romans really were kind of like, how do you want to say it, what their relationship to the Greeks were? They took the best parts of it, and then they, it's kind of like neo-Marxism. They take Marxism, and then they, they get rid of the things they don't like, and they add some other things that they like. It's still Marxism at its core, but it looks a little bit different. Anyway, so yeah, Zeus, the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers in Gerizim. So apparently they built a temple there. Anyway, you can read the whole story. Um, in, fact, in effect, what happens is he refuses, he refuses to do the sacrifice. He won't repent, in other words, to do what they tell him to do. Um, and uh, he won't accept release you know, under their terms. And he, but they confess the resurrection of the body. So turn, this would be page three. Chapter 7 of First Maccabees. By the way, up until English Bibles, German Lutherans in particular, Scandinavian Lutherans, we all had the book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, and we read it. It was part of our tradition. We lost it. So um, maybe it would be a fun thing to do is to do a, it's not really a Bible study, so I wouldn't want to do it on Sunday morning, but to do an apocryphal study. But anyway, we use the apocrypha all the time in this. You'll see this a lot in the summer with the, with the uh, antiphons in particular. Anyway, uh, it's chapter 7. Oh, my goodness. Look at verse 4. Or 3. We'll start in 3. The king fell into a rage and gave orders to have the pans and cauldrons heated. These were heated immediately, and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out, and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. All right, so there's, this, there's uh, Eleazar, then there's this unnamed mother, and then there's seven sons, and they're being tortured. Isn't that crazy? When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. Yeah, you think you got it rough. The smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, here we go. The Lord God is watching over us and in truth has compassion on us. As Moses declared in his song that bore witness against the people to their faces when he said, and he will have compassion on his servants. Yeah, so he even quotes the Song of Moses. That's Deuteronomy 24, maybe. That might be where it is. After the first brother had died in this way, they brought forward the second for their sport. They tore off the skin of his head and the hair and asked him, will you, rather, will you eat rather than to have your body punished limb by limb? Right? This is, again, eating the sacrifice to Dionysus. He replied in the language of his ancestors and said to them, no. Therefore, he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had done. And when he was at, at his last breath, he said, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life. Here's the key. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. All right. So this is, this is an intertestamental book, meaning it comes from between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about from Micah, or Chronicles, depending on whatever last book you, you want to have as your Old Testament scriptures. Um, not Micah. What's the last book in the, in the English? Malachi. From Malachi um, you know, to the Gospels, there's about 400 years, 350 years. There's no, there's no word from the Lord. But the, Mac, the Maccabean revolt happens in there, and it's recorded for us. So it's a Jewish text. Um, both the Jews received it as scripture, and most Christians received it as scripture until basically the 20th century, 19th century. So, um, 
the way that uh, Luther approached the apocryphal books is to say they're good for devotional reading, for historical understanding, that kind of thing. But we don't take any doctrine from them. So, but here, they confess the resurrection of the body, but you don't need Maccabees to prove the resurrection of the body from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures. But it is interesting that they believed in it, right? And notice the language on your sheet there. Receive their dead, no, 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 that they might rise again to a better life. It's almost a quote, is it not? What does he say? That the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life, right? Renewal of life because we have died for his law. So we were listening to a podcast on the way into church this morning. But um, apart from the Sadducees, they, the Jews expected a resurrection on the last day. And you see that, what, was, what did he quote? John 11, right? Yeah, with Martha, right? In regards to Lazarus, Jesus like, you know, is going to raise Lazarus, but Martha's like, well, we'll see him on the last day but then he raises him then, right? Just as Jesus himself raises them. So you can read the whole story. I gave you the whole, I gave you the whole thing. I think it's really incredible, actually. I'm sorry it's so small. You can use your magnifying glass at home. Um, there is a matching apocrypha to the ESV study Bible, to this Bible. So they came out with an apocryphal text that has notes that goes with the um, this, our current study Bible for the CPH. And it has historic notes, it has references to scriptures, other texts. It's, it's really well done. It's not, it's not big, it's pretty thin. Uh, and it has the things like the song of the three men, right? After they come out of the fiery furnace, which we use on the Easter Vigil. It's got, um, obviously, the Maccabees books, Wisdom of Solomon, some others. It has a bunch of songs in it. Yep. So, uh, it's worth... You know, picking that up. So there, that's what I gave you there under 35B. So, sec, why did I say 2nd Maccabees? It says 1st Maccabees on here. It's actually 2nd Maccabees. Oh, I think it's re- referring back to 1st Maccabees, the parentheses. But this is 2nd Maccabees. All right. Um, you don't know anything about dreidels and lights that don't go, candles that don't go. Okay. So you have to read about the Maccabean revolt. But that helps you understand then the whole release of, of Barabbas. You know, that, that tradition of releasing a prisoner at the Passover, that's where it comes from, from the Macca- at least from the Maccabean revolt, that they always just released a prisoner so that they wouldn't revolt <laughs> in memory of the Maccabean revolt. Yeah. Oh, watch, we get new protests now. So last summer it was Black Lives Matter, right? That was the big one all summer, destroying like a thousand times more destruction than we saw on January 6th. But yet that's not condemned. I don't know, whatever. Um, no, this summer we get, we get gay pride revolts. I didn't know that they were so angry, but apparently they are because they're revolting. There was one yesterday. They're rioting and protesting and destroying property. It's like, how do they, they're such hateful. I thought they were supposed to be happy with the rainbows and things. Oh, we're the hateful people. I'm so confused. And then what will come, here's what's going to be really interesting is that we'll have the, the, uh, LGBTQ people rioting at the same time as we're going to see Muslim revolts as well in their country. Right? So you think I'm joking. This is true. This is the plan. Right? Because the black, thing thing, black Lives Matter thing is kind of spinning out now. So now we need other things, you know, so that we can take away the guns and all that kind of stuff that they want to do. All right. So anyway, the Jews did the same thing. They revolted every year about the, you know, it's the summer. It's the time of revolts. That's what you do. And like there's a guy who's a new messiah. So. No, there's always a new messiah. Always need a messiah. Maybe we'll get it right this time. All right. Then... Um, all right, so that was verse 35. Then the last one, that they might rise to a better life. Others, others, like who? Suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. By the way, before I scroll, you notice that a lot of these things actually sound like Jesus. So while we can think of particular historic examples, those examples are types or shadows pointing forward to the way that Christ himself suffered. Not necessarily all of them, but some of them. Right? But did Jesus meet a woman and bring back their child from, from the dead? Yeah, that's not Zarephath. That's Sidon, right? The woman, is that right? Tyre and Sidon? Nain, widow at Nain, excuse me, Nain, which we also hear. Probably the same Sunday we hear of the Zarephath woman. We also hear of the resurrection at Nain, which would be nice to put those two together, which I'm sure they did. 
Um, so who are these others who suffered mocking and flogging with chains and imprisonment? Joseph did, true. The prophets did, actually. So I gave you three of them there. Hanani, uh, Micaiah, and Jeremiah would be the, probably the one that's most familiar to you is Jeremiah when he was, was it in the court? No, it was in the temple that he was chained up, right? They threw him in the cesspool. Ouch. You know, it's so, it used to be so much easier to be a pastor. Well, Jesus tells the uh, apostles, or the disciples before they're apostles, what? If they won't receive you, just shake off the dust and walk away, which is a lot easier than Jeremiah or, or even somebody like uh, uh, Jonah, right? He's like, you got to go to the city. I don't want to. Tough luck. <laughs> At least with his disciples. Go give it a go, and if they don't like you, then you can just leave. All right, so uh, others were stoned. What? Yeah, that happened a lot under false pretense, right? Under false charges of blasphemy. Gave you a couple examples. Zechariah would be one. Um, Naboth is another one. He was stoned by Ahab. Is that right? By the king in First Kings. Yeah, for his vineyard. Um, then sawn apart. That one's an interesting one. Because I, you know, is there a story in the Old Testament where the or somebody gets sawn in two? Huh. Well, if you do the research, there's actually, there's actually not what's, okay, we, we've talked about biblical books, right? So we, had, we have, we have uh, I'm going to use just colloquial language, accepted, disputed, apocrypha, apocryphal books, okay? So accepted books, Right, that everybody agrees should be in the Bible. Disputed books, different. Not everybody agrees should be in the Bible. Right, like Revelation, Jude. Uh, what is another one? James, a little bit. Right, there's some, not many Old Testament books. Apocryphal. We just talked about that for Second Maccabees would be an example of that. Maybe the long ending of Daniel, etc. All right. Then there's actually another category that I don't know if I've ever told you about. Ooh, you ready? This one's going to be really exciting. I might be overselling it. How do you spell pseudo? Is that right? No, it's U-E. Now, which way? It's E-U. Pseudo pigraphal. Oh, you were excited. I can tell. Pseudo pigraphal. So pseudo meaning virtual, fake, false, right? And then um, pigraphal, written, written by. So false writings. So there's a whole class, just like we see in the back here. Actually, this is pseudo pigraphal in the back. Behind you, you see it? Yeah. These are writings that are claiming to be Christian, not scriptures, but Christian writings, but they're not really scripture. And they're really outside that. And Christians have done this through the, our entire history. They've written all sorts of fiction for the fun of it. <laughs> like the Gospel of Tom. Well, some people didn't just write it for the fun of it, but because they wanted to reject the scriptures, then they'll write false scriptures and they'll even falsely attribute them. So there's like, you know, pseudo so-and-so. Um, there's actually a, there's a, there's a pseudopigraphal book called, that's written by pseudo-Dionysius. Like, so he's named after a guy named, a god named Dionysius, but he's not even Dionysius the guy, it's, it's the fake Dionysius guy. So confusing. Somebody had their hand up? All right, anyway, there's, there's a pseudopigraphal book that's called The Martyrdom and Ascension of, Asi of Isaiah. You can Google this if you... No, Dr. Goet, sorry. What's that? Oh, is that who it is? Oh, you got a note on it? Oh, look at that. Good. Son and two. Yeah. There you go. Right, and I quoted it right here for you at the bottom of page one. And when Isaiah was being sawn in sunder, he neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spake with the Holy Spirit until he was sawn in twain. Yep. Right, exactly. So it's possible that he's referring to just early martyrs, but um, this is one of the things we learned from the, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, from the Qumran Scrolls, is that um, you know, Jews at the time of Jesus and then early Christians as well 
they had a much broader reading list than what we do. So they read the scriptures, but then they also had all these other documents that they re refer to. And they, they understood them as being mythology or legend. But, um, but the thing with legend or mythology is it's not always harmful. We think of, that, of like myth as being harmful, but sometimes myth is just, your, just a reasonable way to explain the unexplainable. Right? We believe all sorts of mythology, actually. Even about our, ourselves and our country and our history as a church or whatever, you know? We make up stories all the time to try to explain things. Legendary stories. And it, some of you are legends already in your own time. Mm -hmm, yeah. Really hard to get to. If you see the photos of it, it's like you're like 60, 70 feet off the ground. It's this little hole in the wall. I'm like, how did they even get them in there in the first place? But the sea level has probably changed. Yeah. But it's on the, on the wall, on the rock wall face. Yeah. So um, excavation is always a little challenging. Anyway, so there you go. The martyrdom of Isaiah, maybe. It's a nice legend. I like the idea. Don't know if it's true. They were killed with the sword. That, of course, applies to all sorts of people, right? Ahab killed all the prophets. And then Isaiah's like, whoa, it was me. There's none left. And then God's like, yeah, no, there's, there's still 5,000. <laughs> Sorry, Isaiah. I love Isaiah because he whines all the time. That's my favorite because, you know, I'm sympathetic. Or Elijah. Sorry, I said Isaiah. Elijah. Thanks for the correction. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Oh, that sounds familiar. That's Elijah as well, right? And then also, Jean de Baptiste, right? As the French say. You, you might prefer John the Baptist, being from America. Okay. John the Baptizer. Uh, sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. You're not good enough for them. <laughs> uh, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Yeah, so I think Elijah's in mind there and John are two good examples of that. Who else did they have in mind from First Samuel? Who's that, do you think? Oh, that's uh, the cave of Adullam with David. Okay. Yeah, when he hid from Saul. I hadn't thought of that. That's pretty good too. And of course, as Ron has pointed out a couple times, I mean, the, the, all of these things, not only do they describe, you know, particular individuals in the Old Testament, but you're, broadly speaking, this is the life of the Christian church in the early centuries of the church, for sure, up until, at least until the legalization uh, under Constantine, but, uh, or before him even, a little bit. All right. And all these, here's the key that I was trying to point out to Gabe a long time ago, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You said they got what they were promised, but they didn't, right? Not face-to-face, -face, right? In the person, in the flesh. They're commended by their faith. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think this is a really incredible statement. Did I write much about it? Probably. Oh, I did. I wrote a lot about it. Um, so let me read what I wrote, and then we'll talk about it. This is on page two. In life and in death, in prosperity and in adversity, in victory and in persecution, God vindicated the faithful people of the old covenant for their faith, which hoped much from him. Yet, they had not received the main thing God had promised them, the full inheritance of eternal life in the city of God, their lasting possessions in the heavenly homeland. All right, which is what was at the beginning of this chapter. So this is a couple of weeks ago and probably have forgotten, but well, maybe I should just go there. All right, what, what was the context? Back in Isaiah, or excuse me, Hebrews 11, 9, by faith he dwelt, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to, here it is, the city that has foundations whose designer is, and builder is God. Right? So what was he looking... What, they, they don't have what they're looking forward to yet. They only have... They have it, what, in a way, like through a sign or through... But you get Canaan, but it's not Canaan that actually the story's about. It's about the heavenly Canaan. It's the, the city of God. That's right, Augustine. So I, that, that... What's interesting about that is... We've talked about this frequently um, when we were doing this on Wednesday nights, that... Oh, what verse are we in? Uh, 39, right? Yeah. 
that you have something better than they did. This is one of the assertions of the writer of the Hebrews, is that if you like not only your faith, but your experience is actually better than theirs. And we are, you know, like I said, we, we like to write our own histories and um, we especially like to be nostalgic and talk about how better it used to be. And then the writer of the Hebrews comes along and says, you've got it better than they did. I'm like, what? No, yeah, you have something more perfect, more sure, right? Because you actually have Christ in the flesh. You have, through faith, you've seen actually the promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Right, yeah. So I say that's a surprise, in, in a surprising turn, the preacher-teacher, because he's doing both. He's preaching and he's teaching at the same time. You're getting this master class in, in Bible history while he's preaching to you, right? Um, he, he kind of expects you to know these stories, which is also interesting, right? You know, and it's, you think about it, it's going like this. And he's just staccato, you know, machine gun kind of style. And you're like, I can't keep up. Slow down, Pastor. Uh, can I take, give me some notes. Give me a handout. All right, anyway. Preacher teacher reveals that the congregation has something better um, than, excuse me, than the people of faith uh, had when they lived. So the examples of the faithful exemplar, the ex- assertions of, I'm sorry for using big words here, um, of a better covenant, that was back chapter 7 and chapter 8, based on better promises, 8, with a better hope of access to God, chapter 7, through the better ministry of Jesus, also chapter 8, and the better sacrifices of his body and blood, chapter 9. That, so that's been the assertion for the last five chapters, is that you, everything you have is better than what they had. You think, oh, it would have been so nice. I mean, maybe you just, you like that idyllic life with your sheep on the, you know, wandering through the desert. This doesn't sound that idyllic, actually, now that I say it out loud. Looking for water. <laughs> it's 100 miles apart between... People did, yeah. It was such a simpler life before the Google and the Facebook and the cell phones. People could just, people just went and talked to each other. I know. You have to walk a half an hour just to have a five-minute conversation. Yep. Uh, such a waste. Such a waste. <laughs> Here's the summary then. The text, this text, this whole section, emphasizes the unity of God's people over the generations. Right? So all the way from, who did we start out with? Uh, Samson, was it? Was the first one? No. Gideon, yeah. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, uh, all sharing in the realization of the promises together. Christ has already been made complete through his death and exaltation. That's chapter 2, chapter 5. He now makes others complete through the cleansing of their conscience. Chapter 9, chapter 10. Which you have to go back and watch those if you didn't. In anticipation of the resurrection, when all the people of God will be made complete in everlasting life in the heavenly Zion, which we'll get to in the next chapter, chapter 12. All right, so maybe one way to think about this, um, you know, you, what, it, what he's trying to say is if Jesus is here at the center, is that all of the, all those people that we've talked about from Abel all the way through to the prophets, right? All these people are looking forward to the cross, but they can't see it. They can only see it through faith, but not. Now you, you have this advantage. You can look back both at the cross but you actually get to look back at them too, right? So you, have, you, have, you see the completion of all things. You see how all of this is leading to Christ and the cross fulfilled for you. And of course, you're just like them. We're all looking forward. Sorry, my arrows are terrible. There we go. We're all looking forward to the resurrection on the last day, right? But you, you can see, you just see more of the picture. That's why it's better, right? Because you see, you know, you know, God has revealed more to you than he did to them. It was harder for them to believe. All right, I wanted to share something with you. I marked my page if I can find it. Oh, yes. So when we did this on Wednesday nights, one of the things I like to do is, um, we'll end on this, is to uh, share with you where it's found, where these texts are used in our Lutheran confessions, which I like to call you know, the theological constitution of the congregation. We have a regular constitution, which is going to the district for... on on its way, in the district's hand, rather, on its way, in their hands, both electronic and, yeah, um, for approval, right? But we have a theological constitution that tells us what we believe, right? 
And simply put, it's the creeds, but more broadly speaking, it's in our official name, the unaltered Augsburg Confession, right? And then in our, con in our but that, that's the simplest of the bunch. But uh, then we also acknowledge then in our practical constitution that we theologically also subscribe to the whole book of Concord, all the Lutheran confessions. All right, so, um, but Augsburg Confession, Apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article one eight, uh, Article 4 actually uses this Hebrews text. All right. So I'm going to share it. This is from uh, Dr. Kleinig, who's in Australia. I don't think he's in the States right at the moment. He comes to the U.S. all the time. He's not here right now. Okay. I don't think. Um, he says this. It's the message of what we just read may become increasingly relevant to the church as it begins to face an aggressively hostile world that forcefully discounts Christ and his claims on it. Seems like a reasonable prediction, right? The persecution of faithful Christians that began under Hitler in Germany and under communism in Eastern Europe and in China ha and has increased with the rise of militant Islam in the Middle East and Africa is likely to spread to the Western world. When did he write this? That seems a little relevant. Uh, this came out 2017. All right. It's interesting he mentions China. That incre increasingly coincides with the upsurge of militant anti-Christian sentiment in Europe, North America, and Australia. By the way, that's why the Marxists of various stripes, either neo or new or whatever, the progressive socialist type people, they all, they go after every cultural institution, especially the church. Right? Because they don't care what you believe as long as it's not Jesus. You know, any kind of mystical mumbo jumbo you want to believe is fine because the state can run right next to it. But the state can't run next to faith in Christ as, as a God. All right. Because Jesus is kind of exclusive. He does say that, doesn't he? Yeah. He's not very inclusive. He's not very inclusive. Well, he's inclusive in him. <laughs> right. Okay. So the time may soon come and may have already arrived when the church needs to be encouraged and emboldened by what has been taught and what we just read about the power of faith to overcome all evil and to endure the worst forms of persecution, even being sawn in two. That sounds like fun. Who is the guy was it, that's in the Sistine Chapel where he gets flayed and he's, and he's uh, roasted on the, on the gridiron? It's Bartholomew, yeah, Apostle Bartholomew. In the Sistine Chapel, he's actually painted up there being roasted without his skin on. Really beautiful. Oh, there's two pictures. He's holding his skin, but he's got a cross and he's holding the skin too. Also not very pretty. Yeah, you know, talk to Michelangelo, right? Take it up with him. All right. Yeah, yeah. Lulled as it is by false hopes of social acceptance, economic prosperity, and outward growth in membership. Well, that doesn't sound like anything we've ever heard. The church in the West has become diffident and demoralized, soft and fearful, because it bypasses Christ's suffering for the redemption of the world. Christians are no longer convinced that since Christ overcame the power of sin and abuse, evil and injustice, by his suffering and death, they too achieve most, they too achieve most as people of faith by the endurance of affliction. Whether we are persecuted or not, we are all engaged in a contest, the battle against the devil and the powers of darkness. This is part of our vocation as Christians, the good works that God enables and enacts by what we do and what we suffer. The truth of this is described most vividly by Melanchthon in Apology 4, article, uh, paragraph 189. In these good works, he, that is Christ, sanctifies hearts and suppresses the devil. And in order to keep the gospel among men, he visibly pits the witness of the saints against the rule of the devil. In our weakness, he displays his strength. It's a powerful statement. In his weakness, in our weakness, I should say, he displays his strength. Right, just in Jesus. He defeats the devil by dying. Hidden underneath weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness, yeah. The dangers, labors, and sermons of the Apostle Paul, Athanasius, Augustine, and other teachers of the church are holy works, true sacrifices acceptable to God, battles by which Christ restrained the devil and drove him away from the believers. David's labors in waging war and in governing the state are holy works, true sacrifices, battles of God to defend the people who had God's word against the devil, and that the knowledge of God might not, be, might not perish utterly from the earth. We, the same way, we feel the same way about every work done in the most humble occupations and in private life. 
to disparage works like the confession of doctrine, afflictions, works of charity, and the mortification of the flesh would be to disparage the outward administration of Christ's rule among men. Huh. But it fits in with the sermon. Look at that. Yeah, we don't discourage people from works of charity or afflictions or mortifying the flesh. It doesn't save you, but it does confess Christ at work in you. It is the most significant, oh, this is Kleinig now, it is, the mo- is most significant that the endurance and afflictions is included here among the good works of the saints. It's used elsewhere too, by the way. When we Christians are faced with public hostility for our confession of faith, we are all too often tempted to withdraw from the battle in the public domain. The example of the saints who have gone before us should, should discourage us from such a tactical retreat from engagement with the world around us. Thus, their involvement as people of faith in public affairs, according to the station and vocation, is just as much an example for us to emulate as their faithful participation in the divine service and their faithful practice of piety. In that regard, Melanchthon gives us helpful advice in Apology 21, paragraph 36, again, one of our Lutheran confessions, as part of the discussion on the veneration of saints. Right? So we don't pray to the saints, but listen to what he has to say. The great things that the saints have done serve as examples to men in their public or private life, as a means of confirming their faith and as an incentive to imitate them in public affairs. But, but these no one has sought out in the true stories about the saints. So the legends don't talk about what? How they confess the faith in their public and private lives. The legends have to do with like all their incredible things that they did, right? I don't know. Or some vision they had, that's right. The saints administered public affairs, underwent troubles and dangers, helped kings in times of great danger, taught the gospel, battled against heretics. So the achievements of the saints in chapter 11 encourage people of faith to the fearless service of God in public life. By faith, they can achieve much against impossible odds and powerful opponents, confident in God's protection and reliant on the power that God provides them in their weakness. Taken as a whole, uh, chapter 11, 32 to 40, teaches the congregation that it is part of a huge community that stretches back in time, encircles the world, and reaches out far into the future and up to, into heaven. Let's just visualize that. That's kind of what I was trying to do here, right? They are part of an eternal community, the communion of saints, which includes the people of God from the Old Testament. They are all part of the same assembly before God. They tra- all travel the same journey and reach their destination together. Hmm. So are they behind us or ahead of us? In the, in the, there's a lot of time travel in the Bible. Yeah, in eternity there's no time. We all get to the resurrection on the same day. Mm-hmm. We're all there of all saints before and after us together. Yeah. In time, beyond time. Or, yeah, end time, all time, together. No time, time and eternity, together. In heaven. In heaven, on earth. It's a paradox. It's good. Thanks, Ethan. Right, so I mean, I, I think he's right. I think what we're trying to get here is that this is this this whole chapter has been one of encouragement, and then you'll see why because it's right here in chapter twelve. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we'll talk about this last time, next time, because there's a lot here. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely, and run the endurance, the race that is set before us. You see, so all of that, all those examples from Abel all the way through, are now a witness to us as to look. You can do it. You can do it. That's that was a terrible movie. Um, I'm trying to think of another another good example, right? It, there is something about that. If you're not the first person to climb the mountain, you know it can be done, right? The first person has the hardest job, and then after that, everybody climbs Everest today. You know, no big deal. I mean, there's dead bodies all the way up, but you know. Yeah, you can go. No, you can't go to the South Pole. No, that's restricted. You're not allowed to travel on, in Antarctica without, without permission. Did you know that? No, oh, there's international law that prohibits it. Yeah, you, that's the question you're supposed to ask. Why? Well, who would want to? But why, why aren't you allowed to just go there? Why can't you just go there? Mm-hmm. No, it is. It's true. Yeah. I, I had a classmate in high school who, who got like special dispensation to do a work abroad study there. 
and never heard from her again. Oh, that's where the aliens are hidden. Thanks, Ethan. <laughs> June, June 25th, I think, is the declassification day. That's what the DOD said. So they'll declassify and tell us how. It's not, they already said it's not from the U.S. They're not from the U.S. Um, they didn't make them. They don't know where they're. What are they distracting us from? Because who really cares? No, they've already said they're not. Well, there's something. I mean, I don't dispute that these pilots actually saw things. I don't know what they are, though. So. Somebody, I was listening to commentary yesterday where they said, well, they have to be real careful how they release this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to do two things. It's going to undermine religions and it's going to create new ones. I'm like, yeah, maybe, actually. As if there's not already people that are cultically, like, follow UFO things since... I want to believe. Remember Fox Mulder's poster on X-Files? I want to believe. Yeah. So, I don't know. Does it undermine Christian faith? Who knows? We'll have to deal with that when we get to it, right? Not faith in Christ. Just like, why didn't God tell us about the aliens? Because you didn't need to know about them? Like, so what? But the aliens? I don't know. I had it. Okay, I'll stop there. There's so much more I could say about ancient aliens. Well, right. And it, I th- what I would suggest is that it's um, it's a distraction from something else. Just like Fauci's emails, by the way, it's actually a distraction from the bigger story, which is that we were doing the same research at University of Wisconsin Madison, 2014. Did it with H1N1, amplified that virus. Guy, that's what caused the the, the pause of the research. Yeah, no, we do the same thing in the States. Both China and the U.S. are doing bioweapons research, amplifying viruses to, it's like, they don't, wanna, they don't want the American people to know that the only reason China's doing it, the question is, why are we funding China doing it if we're already doing it here? Hmm. Worldwide apocalypse, that's nice. Right, because it used to be in the Cold War, you know, you had your nuclear armaments, they had theirs, and then there was kind of this like, okay, as long as we each have a lot, then, you know, total, what do they call that? Well, mutual, yeah, mutually assured destruction. Yeah, mutual assured destruction. Um, but it's not that way with bioweapons. Because it's not, I mean, maybe you wipe out all of humanity, or maybe you just turn everybody into something else. Now I'm, now I'm just scaring you. Uh, or not. You're the thing. What's that? Branded you? Really? They put a number on you? That's so strange. All right, let's pray. Uh, this is from See the Clo- Saints See the Cloud of Witnesses from uh, Pastor Starkey. These saints of old received God's commendation. They live as pilgrim heirs of his salvation. Through faith they conquered flame and sword and gallows, God's name to hallow. May God grant it to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.